0: Good morning, all, and welcome to the podcast. This week, we're doing to do something slightly different. We're going to have a leadership special. With the recent news that um, it's looking like lockdown is going to be eased and it's all going to be data-driven, we decided that uh, it's worth a discussion around the sort of leadership challenges that have been thrown up, that are currently being thrown up, and, and what are the long-term effects for, for kind of leaders, morale, inspiration, et cetera, going forwards. Some of you will remember that last week we mentioned Kath Bishop and her book, The Long Win. Well, she's going to join us today. And we've also been joined by Bandy Hickson. Now, Paul mentioned imposter syndrome. I think when we were talking about the Matterhorn this week, we are both suffering incredibly with imposter syndrome because Kath is a former diplomat and anybody that's worked overseas will have huge respect for the work that the diplomatic corps do under enormous pressure. And as if that wasn't enough, she managed to fit that in around going to the Olympics on a number of occasions and, in fact, ultimately achieving a silver medal um, as an oarswoman. Mandy some of you've heard Mandy before and she's certainly a long standing friend of Sandstone and Mandy was one of the first female fast jet pilots to experience combat in Iraq Mandy was a Tornado GR4 pilot and now regularly talks about dealing with pressure identifying threats and controlling the controllables so we thought we'd invite both ladies on today to have a discussion around leadership and how we think the challenges are going are to rise over the next sort of few months, really. And of course, both ladies have their books out at the moment as well. Mandy, for all of the obvious reasons, book is called An Officer, Not a Gentleman. And Kat's book, The Long Win, is something that we were discussing last week with Colin Greger. And it's about reevaluating what success looks like for us as individuals. So ladies, good morning. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, we wanted to get these to all actually, and the reason we mentioned Cat's uh, book the other week was because I think at the moment, it's, it, leadership is something that's actually quite interesting at the moment, shit, um, from all kind of walks, and I would argue that at the moment, for me, it's all arguably harder than it has been previously, and by that, what I mean is, when we've kind of been locked down, and they're the rules, and that's it, black and white, you kind of know what you've got to do, and you make some choices, you either, as we discussed before, you either try and fight out, you either try and endure, or you pretend it's not happening, but actually as this goes longer for me and we try and find ourselves trying to kind of um, work out what we can and can't do, then for me the perception of what's happening around us actually becomes more difficult and arguably the path forwards becomes more challenging, you know, what does success look like, which is what we we're talking about with Colin Gregor last week and obviously Kath made me think about, maybe think about sort of your book about redefining success.
1: So I... I completely agree. We're noticing leadership more. I think it's always been difficult and I think we probably haven't been doing that good a job of it in in a lot of of organisations in a lot of situations, because we don't really think about what's required. We kind of do what we did before. We often have quite a short and shallow way of measuring how well we're doing. Um, But suddenly, we're realising we're coming up short, because we're in a crisis, because the world has changed around us. And we need leadership, like we, you know, we've really noticed that. And that's why I think there is now this focus on what are we actually trying to achieve what does success look like in a pandemic when your traditional short term metrics have been tossed out the window because you're not going to get your, your targets, your sales targets for the year and you're not going to win a gold medal, you know, it. it when the competition is happening and and all of these things have moved the traditional goalposts but actually it could be helpful because it means now we have to think about what really matters in the longer term what's the real value we want to add beyond any short-term metrics and those questions could be quite helpful to actually getting us onto a track that's much more sustainable.
0: Yeah, and I I think we've been talking about, you know, sustainability is something that's kind of forever associated with Greta Thunberg and and Planet. And 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 I'm certainly not detracting from that. But for me, we've been talking quite a lot about sustainable leadership. So creating relationships that will endure when you can't take all those metrics in place and can't look at the traditional. For me, all you get left with is the trust and the relationship between team members and leaders in order to try and carry that forward. Arguably, even more so when you're then operating remotely, some of the professional services sort of sectors that we work in have a tendency to micromanage, largely because that power base comes from being experts. So you would expect to see that. But of course, when you're remote, spread across country, uh, micromanaging somebody is spectacularly difficult and incredibly stressful, actually, not only for the person being micromanaged, but for the person doing the micromanaging because they sit there kind of worrying about you know what's happening next and, and what and what it's going to look like.
1: Yes, it's it's fundamentally ineffective, isn't it? I think you're right. Connection is really important, and again, we've suddenly got a heightened awareness of what that means because we haven't got it in all of the cases we might normally expect it. So we're starting to realise it's really important. How do we do it? How do we do it better? And how do we do it in a way that lasts and in a way that helps us when we're under pressure? So I think often we've been guilty of perhaps you know just just connecting, developing relationships at a bit of a transactional level. I need this. You need. You can give me that. We'll just do a swap today and we're fine. But when you get into hard times, when you get into difficult times and and you'll all have great experiences of this because this sits at the heart of a a lot of the military experience, what what enables the military to perform under pressure in, in immense hardship and huge uncertainty is having resilient relationships that therefore are go beyond the transactional they are built on trust they're built on a deeper understanding of the people you're with beyond what you need them for today and that's what's really critical it's the same in sport you wouldn't but you wouldn't even dream of going to compete at a world-class event without knowing the people you're with beyond the fact that they want to do well or they want to win that's just not enough you need to know the strengths what it is they bring to what they're doing how they're going to react to different situations how you can tap into the best of them and how you can support them and manage them with the things that they're going to find difficult and that again is where we're seeing if we if we've only built shallow relationships in business personally or professionally over the recent years then you know in these times when it's really we're under pressure for all sorts of unexpected reasons then we haven't got resilient relationships. We're suffering, we're struggling. You know, resilience is a team sport and it requires us to connect with people around us. And actually, you know, I I think you can connect even through a screen, but it requires us to be much more sensitive, to be thoughtful, to perhaps also pick up the phone, to have different types of communication. We ironically have more communication tools than we've ever had before in our lives. And yet people are lonely more than ever. People are not feeling connected because it's partly the way we use them as well, the intent, you know whether, whether there's that real genuine interest curiosity in who we're talking to, so we are definitely learning a lot about this area and for me this should be a key metric if you like of success how have I invested today in relationships how have I influenced others how have I listened and learned from other perspectives to then develop my own perspective through that
0: uh, do you want to cover? it's even the simple things isn't it Mandy and I did a session not long ago on resilience and um we made a point of chatting at the start of a Zoom call. And I know it sounds really daft, but the whole world on Zoom, first of all, you have the what I call the Zoom seance. Yeah. I can hear you. I can feel you. I think you're there. Are you there? Can you hear them? Can anyone, can anyone see me? And then the minute we realize we're all on screen, we launch straight into this like, oh, that's it. Then uh, agenda point one is this, agenda point two is that. I'm going to do this, we're going to do that. And I said to somebody the other day, you know, if this session we were at was for real, we'd have been stood there with a coffee. We'd have been stood in a, probably some sort of empty room before we'd have started. We'd have talked nonsense for 20 minutes. We'd have got to know each other a little bit. And then realistic, probably after that session, we'd have probably done done something similar. And yet for some reason, just because it's electronic, we seem to sort of drop all the human bits of it, um, which I would argue at the yeah. moment, the human bits are probably the most important, most important factor, really. Yeah,
1: I think it's such a good point because also communication can be formal and informal and we've suddenly lost the informal bit and actually that comes back to your original question about leadership at the moment you know leadership happens in the gaps it's not just what you say at the meeting it's what you say when you you know what, what people are left with when you're not there you know the the kind of again the connections you've made the impact you've had on people the influence you've had on the way they do their job whether they feel valued or not whether they feel heard and listened to or not so again I think in leadership terms it's about understanding 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 that it can be almost invisible aspects that can be the most powerful part of leadership it's not just what you do and what you say when you're on screen giving out your messaging it's actually what are you leaving people with after that meeting that's that kind of determines the impact you've had on others and and the leadership effect if you like
0: yeah, I mean, I think it's super dangerous because we've been talking about, I bring you imagine this as well, like we've been talking about perception, Paul, haven't we as well? You know, perception is super dangerous at the moment, because there's a there's a load of leaders I've seen that kind of want to be this Spartan leader, you know, show no fear, charge from the front. You, you know, um, uh, make. But actually, in my view, you're making the gap bigger between the leader and the lead. And I'll never forget what happened to me, Kath, My one and only sort of rowing story, really. It was the it was the junior national schools regatta, and uh, aged eighteen, and we were in the semi final. We, we were expected to win that uh, the overall regatta, the overall regatta. I'm saying this laughing, right? If only you could see now the Olympic rower laughing at me, okay, Lau. But I don't mind putting it out there. But I remember the commentator saying uh that we got it done easy because we were like the third qualifying place through and we were expected to win it and I remember getting back and my dad's telling me that like oh he did really well, you took that really really easy commentator was saying how you were cruising along and in fact we'd just not been up for it that day we just hadn't got it for whatever reason it wasn't fired and wasn't working and, and we qualified by the absolute skin of our teeth and we were hanging on but the kind of public perception was hadn't we done well and cruised through it you know and actually that wasn't that wasn't real. We weren't, yeah, you know, we weren't in control of that, in control of that moment. And I think at the moment it's people trying to hide, man, do you know what I mean?
2: Yeah. And it's it's interesting actually because I've had a few different leaders reaching out to me to speak to their teams recently. And one of the most powerful ones was a guy that said, I'm sorry, I don't have a budget. I work for a big bank, but I don't have a budget. So I'd like to pay for you myself. Uh and I was like, My gosh that was really moving because it showed me that he was really picking up on what his team needed that they were all zoomed out but but although it was still going to be delivered on zoom it was going to be a really he just went I want energy I want you to just boost us up I want brilliant stories I want you know just for us all to feel good at the end of the session he said I just feel that everyone's just getting worn down a little bit and we just need some happiness and he said and I've heard that you can do that and I thought well, that was just really powerful for me because that was sort of honest leadership there saying, you know what, I know what my team needs. Um, I'm not doing this so that I can, you know, be going up the scales or being assessed on my leadership. It was just basically him responding and reaching out on a very personal level. And I don't know, I mean, a lot of the people I'm hearing at the moment, that whole you know as you say that spartan leadership is not working and people want that transparency they want vulnerability in their leaders they want the people that are coming on you know their leaders to say god it's tough at the moment i don't want to be at the bottom of my well looking up with my leader going it's great up here it's lovely you know come and join me when you can they want to go it's pretty awful in the well isn't it at the moment and you know what i'm suffering as well and you know i think when i've been doing my sessions with people as well i've been saying you know what i've been crying 10 minutes before because i've had a huge argument with my teenage when people go really now, i'm not saying that as a negative i'm saying it because we've all got stuff going on you know and just because i might be about to do a you know a, an uplifting keynote speech for you there's still crap that's going on in the background you know and we're all human um mm. and i think it's just i think the best leaders i'm seeing are the ones that are saying it, it is real and, that, and they're yeah. getting so much more buy-in from their their teams aren't they
1: yeah i think that's huge i mean it's compassion is strength that's the jacinda ardern kind of oh, uh, wonderful mantra that, that that you know for me sums up that that kind of new type of leadership for the future leadership for an uncertain world uh, and it's almost as if we have permission at the moment as well to show it because we're we're all impacted by this. It's difficult for all of us. So it's a massive opportunity. It's easy actually for leaders to show that because how can they not be going through a difficult time? And how can there's almost nobody in your team who isn't going to be having some challenges at the moment? So to not take this opportunity to kind of show that as well, that's even. You know, even worse, if you like, because you know this is a moment when you know it is a struggle all round. And I can remember when I was working as a as a diplomat in Iraq, um, and it was we were you know on a living on a military base in Basra, and it was you know it was really tough. It was you know a hostile environment with incoming rockets and mortars every day, and we massively looked after each other, and it was almost like we had permission to do that. And we would always check in at different points of the day, particularly if there'd been a big attack, but every evening as well. And we were allowed, you know, it went across hierarchy, We, you know, as if we had permission to say, you know, I'm really struggling today, I'll Find this really hard, you know, can you help me? And then when we got back into to Whitehall working in London, nobody asked anymore because yeah. we're not in a yeah. war zone anymore, so we don't look after each other now, it's all fine. And I always think how crazy that is. That it took kind of being in a really, really you know hostile environment for us to feel allowed to look after each other and care for each other when actually that's what we need all the time,
2: yeah, absolutely
3: and I think when you mentioned um Jacinta there, it'd be interesting when we have the big wash up in whenever <laughs> whenever we get to have a think back over the last eighteen months or so, it'll be interesting to see those companies and those countries and those political parties and those leaders that have collaborated. And have done it well versus those leaders who've perhaps had the cult of personality. They've been the superstar and everyone else has just, you know, hung around them and, and looked up to them for the answers. Uh, and perhaps in the past, we've perhaps been a bit guilty of having it's, it's often the, the, the white male up there at the front. Everyone follow me. Listen to me. I've got the sword out. And perhaps that's perhaps not the way. Well, those those countries and those teams and those political parties have perhaps not succeeded as well as those that have collaborated and gone. I'm in charge. I'll make the decision. But, but what do you think? And what do you think? And what's your opinion? And let's let's have a think about this, because, well, one, it's great for the team, because I think it's really good to be asked your opinion. And two, it's great for the leader, because then they haven't got to come up with all the answers. Uh, and uh, as, as we know, sometimes uh, the big boss doesn't have all the answers and gets it wrong. So it'll just be interesting to see how that cult of personality versus that collaborative approach co- comes out in the wash, really.
1: So what it's am I- a really what- interesting comparison. Uh, between yeah the language of Jacinda Ardern and Boris Johnson of, and, and it was very much looking at the his language is you must do this and back. her language was we have all got to do this together and they were relating that to compliance if you like and the willingness of people to want to then you know Live with the restrictions, and there was quite there's basically declining compliance with the paternalistic language that was coming. That's what we've seen here. You know, less and less people feeling that they want to kind of you know be part of what's happening and, and part of the game. Whereas actually in New Zealand, that had extraordinarily high levels of compliance because people feel actually we're part of this decision, uh, and they have that sense of autonomy and and therefore want to make it work. So the, you know, there's already some hints. Of course, you've got to look at who's doing the analysis. Because those those people with the strong personality cults will have strong analysts showing how how great they were, but it's massively interesting.
0: Yeah, we used to talk about uh, we often talk about pull not push. You know, uh, as well uh, with my former in a former life as a human intelligence you know operator, very rarely can you tell somebody what to do. You have to influence them or persuade them. And we used to talk about pull not push. Um, and in fact, one of Paul I's favourite slides is our open door, Paul, isn't it? We've got a slide of kind of half a jar door, and it says, you know, if you have to explain that your door is always open, uh, it isn't. I think sometimes, um, Kath it's quite funny because I obviously recommend your, your book. And um, occasionally, what happens is we get sort of picked up on it because Paul and I regularly talk about outcomes focused leadership. And I know sometimes your book is kind of saying, well, don't focus on the outcome. And I think people don't always necessarily understand that we're actually singing from the same you know from the same sheet in the, in so much as we're saying that outcome can be increased performance that outcome can be to get through the day or to look after each other it doesn't matter but to pick up on what you guys were saying at the start is you know right now doing it how you used to do it isn't going to work so because there is no precedent we've not you know we've not done this before so i think it's quite interesting to explore that kind of the concept of are we setting the right goals and objectives and actually, if we are doing that, then how do we get there? Because trying to follow the process, you know, do you want milk in your black coffee? No, because uh, it's not going to work, is it?
1: Yeah, I think you're right. and And certainly, again, you know, the long win is not about sort of not having goals or not being performance focused at all it's about questioning what are the goals we're working to and what i've often seen is this really kind of narrow shallow short term sense of it's the next you know it's the next medal in the next race it's the next set of targets it's numbers it's profit it's kind of all very short term stuff that doesn't last you know the the metrics come in and then they go again and then you know what happens after that so um you know it's all about thinking actually what what's what's an outcome that has meaning that also has some uh you know that kind of lasts for the longer term that isn't just about what happens next month so it's thinking you know both about how do I turn up today in the best way and do something that has value beyond the short term So I almost want to kind of stretch that sense. So we don't pick goals in any one bit. But actually, we've got something that that has a continuum. And of course, we're refining as we go. and, and, And there's a lot of uncertainty that means we need to keep saying, is this still adding value? Is this still something that people need? How can I deliver it differently if the old way of delivering it doesn't exist anymore? So what I really want to do is people to challenge properly, you know, the why, why your team exists, why your company exists um, in order to build like a broader set of criteria. And then to include in that the how, how I turn up today, how I perform, the things I need to do. Because actually, if I achieve those metrics, but I've done it by not building relationships, by kind of not bringing the team with me, not getting buy in then actually I won't achieve them again. So how is a really important factor in success because that determines whether you can maintain the success and whether you can adapt and develop it thereafter. So I'm all about broadening success criteria really and making sure that we haven't come down to some narrow, kind of meaningless, let's be number one, uh, when, when actually people can't apply that to their daily jobs
2: and it's out of our control anyway. I mean, well, I think, that's just perfect. If that's sustainable yeah. leadership that, that we often talk about, don't we, Tim? Yeah, As I was,
0: was going to say, and actually, one of the things I think you like to talk about as well, is, and I totally agree with you, is that same thing. People have been focusing, the outcomes they've been focusing on are non-controllables. Oh, well, we need to fix a virus. We need to fix a lockdown. We need to fix, and people are focusing on stuff that they can't actually do. Rather than re-evaluating what the gold medal looks like, don't you think Mandy they're focusing on they zero control over which then creates massive frustration rather than focusing on the bits they can
2: yeah and it's interesting actually because on a very personal level you know I feel really quite upbeat at the moment and it's really minor and this is oh, sorry this is really like taking it into the very small world in which we're living at the moment isn't it I'm on a really healthy diet I'm doing loads of exercise I'm on a really healthy diet I'm losing loads of weight and I'm feeling really good and everyone keeps saying to me you're looking really good gosh are you were, uh, you know and I was like I feel it's because I'm in control in this world where we're feeling that so much is out of our control to take control of the one or few bits that you can, which is things like your diet, your exercise regime, things like that. It feels really, really positive. And it makes me therefore feel that actually I'm controlling what is within my grasp at the moment. And the things that I can't control, which is the numbers going up and down, I can do what I can do. And as so long as I'm doing it within the rules, which I am, you know, then I feel really good. And it's amazing what that does to your mental health as well.
0: I think the most yes. happy I've seen Paul look in weeks was today when uh, when I checked to Paul. He's not lost any weight or looking any younger, uh, but apparently his children are going back to school, which has which has which has made him really is, really happy. That
3: has revolutionised uh, my outlook over the next couple of weeks. It's gone yes. Yeah. Go <laughs>
2: We know where you're coming from there. I've got a 16-year-old that is just punching the computer stage, just very hard, very hard. And I, I think it's just, I think it's really hard on everybody, you know. Um, but you know, and another sort of aspect there, if you know, what can you control? Is you can control how you're going to feel, into to some degree, and it's really funny. So, you know, what we're, we're we're living this cross world aren't we whereby we're home educating one minute and then we're talking very upbeatly on a zoom call the next minute and we're pretending that we're great but actually the reality is is that i find within about three minutes of pretending i'm feeling good i actually am feeling good and so i sort of say fake it till you feel it a little bit as well in this sort of time is that not obviously i'm not talking here of of depression and when it's much tougher but if we're just having a low day and you're thinking oh you know oh it's oh, woe be on me, you know, and all this sort of thing. If we just pretend that we're feeling a bit upbeat, then bizarrely, you do get that same dopamine release. And actually, I feel really good then. So, from when I've run a session, I'll finish it and think, God, I feel great. And it's because, again, you're taking control of, of how you're going to feel. Um, and it's, it's amazing how powerful
0: I can be. I think be. we're I think Paul and I, the reason Paul and I kicked off this schools thing, that, that I think I've certainly spent some to you, man. I haven't mentioned to you, but We've been going into schools doing this, um, you know, we can call it Because I Can initiative. And we've just been talking to school kids. And we were using Everest as, a, as an example purely because, you know, to get to the top, you have to go up, to come back down, to go round, to go up, to come back. And it's, you know, guess what? It doesn't go the way you think. And at the moment, I think we're in danger of predetermining people's outcomes and their successes. And, you know, one of the reasons we kicked off the initiative was because there was a BBC News article. I think it was BBC, said, you know, the children, the current generation that we're now describing as the lost generation, I mean, what sort of a message is that from word go? Yeah. And, and then they're being told that, oh, 40,000 pounds of their future income, they've already lost. Well, I mean, based on what? And and even if it's true, um, why would on earth will we put that message out right now? And if, if, that's, if that's, if we're basically telling people success doesn't exist anyway, unless because the traditional pattern of that pathway doesn't exist anymore, I don't, I don't know what, what I, it makes no sense to me I, maybe I've just been brought up all wrong but it makes no oh, sense. I
1: think I think the education system is you know it, we have an opportunity now to look at it and see how it doesn't actually help us to manage uncertainty and you know there's this talk of catching up which is also really unhealthy actually what would be useful is the socialization the activities sport drama all of those things they've missed those will be most valuable to them for the long term it might not help them pass a math test you know in two months time but frankly that isn't going to have that kind of long-term relevance to their lives. And the other thing that'd be really useful would be actually to talk to to, to the children about you have just experienced uncertainty. That is probably one of the most useful lessons that they will have at an early part. So let's think about what can you control? What can't you control in life? They had a massive kind of opportunity to learn about uncertainty at a much younger age than many of us have done um that's a huge advantage that would give them the competitive advantage in business in life personally professionally if we could seize that rather than somehow we've got to go back to the old game that didn't really set us very set us up very well to manage this and now we we somehow need to go back and play that because one of the other sort of challenges is you know, the, the emphasis within schools is on, you know, these short-term outcomes, these kind of fairly arbitrary metrics that are very narrow, that play to the strengths of some and not others, that don't recognise the full diversity of skills that children have and are developing. They're basically worthless if they're not things that are measured in an exam. That's very dangerous because actually in the organisational world, we need more cognitive diversity. We need people who will be doing jobs we don't even know what they will be yet because they haven't been invented. So... Again, this narrowness is really unhelpful in, in the kind of education. Do you world. mean you didn't
0: kick off in like wanting to be a vlogger?
1: I mean, you said it. You nailed
2: it. <laughs> it was
0: Obviously. That even, was that but, even a thing? I mean, it didn't even exist, did it? I mean, it wasn't even a, like... But I actually was- think
2: that's, that's such a good point, Kath, is that it's almost like we're saying how... I hate that. How can we get back and catch up all the time? And I just look, you know, I look at some of the maths that my son's doing. Now I did A-level maths and I'm helping him with his GCSE maths. And it's all, you know, quadratic equations, algebra, fractions of algebra. No, I haven't got a problem doing that. But I stuck stuck a photo on Twitter and literally had hundreds of responses of, of, has anyone ever used this in life since? And actually, unless you're going into engineering or Maybe even if you're not. There is no use for that. And so it's this constant need of we've we got to just look at the old ways. And I'm with you. I've got a seriously dyslexic son that just did not fit into the letterbox of education. And he hated it as a consequence, could not wait to get out. I mean, because i have got just...
0: a parent, Mandy, but maybe we could start a database, right? You get all the parents together with all of their friends, and you get the current curriculum that's being delivered and go, right, as a parent, who's yeah. used this? And if nobody's yeah. used this... let's get get rid of of it I don't know what you get left with
2: I know but I mean your point there of the resilience that they were built up because I do think this generation perhaps are not being the most resilient because there's a lot that's quite easy for them until this period and so actually the skills they're gaining Mm. from this resilience of you, you know I mean it's very interesting actually I mean I was reading a long article about girls versus boys in this period as well and I have two boys and they both do gaming and that has been a godsend because much like an adult that goes for a walk and talks to somebody while they're gaming they're doing an activity that's a shared activity and they're laughing and they're joking and they're talking to their friends and the girls are not as much so the girls have got to actively get online and if you're feeling a bit low that's hard so they're seeing more psychological problems potentially with young young girls than they are with young boys So that's another interesting one. Just throwing that out there.
1: Mm, Yeah, I I think we're going to be learning about that, aren't we? About what the Mm. impacts have been of this period. But again, we could just see that in itself as an opportunity to explore. you you, You will have an uncertain career you know especially if you want to go into um you know the entrepreneurial world which is growing all of the time we're not really preparing children for that world well we could be because what they've learned here is about risk is about how you have to do things differently you know and pivot on on you know within a moment so again there's there's an opportunity to actually make education more relevant uh and yet it seems that we're gonna not see that advantage because we're so blinkered by the way things used to be done we have to go back to what's really quite a victorian curriculum um, because that's that's the measure we all knew and and that's really a waste if we don't take this opportunity we could have the summer term as being just a kind of incredible experience of you know socializing again in schools activities sports you know it could be a real kind of wonderful everybody's so grateful and appreciating that they can they can be back in school Or we can just try and make it a rammed, a kind of more miserable version of what we used to do.
2: I know which one I prefer. We're back to the long win, aren't we, Kath? You know, that's the important things: is that our kids have lost out in that sociability aspect. So going to your long win process, you know, they should be doing exactly what... I think you need to go get your diplomatic skills and get out there and start speaking to oh, the education. Often, it's okay. interesting
1: how, how many times in debates about the long win, in debates about success, in debates about performance, whether it's in sporting communities, um, business communities... Uh, that we've had kind of discussions around the, the the book, we always end up back in the education world but that's taught us certain ways to expect, you know, who's good, who are the winners, who are the losers? It starts at that point. And it's interesting that even when we're not in talking to, to educators, we often end up coming back to that's where our early behaviours, expectations are set, which is why, you know, that can be limiting at that point. And we have to work against that often at a later stage to enable people to flourish, to be themselves themselves having failed at school. Oh, actually it doesn't matter because you're really good at this thing over here and 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 you know off we well, go. Uh, and lots of entrepreneurs yeah, um, have that. Just
0: before all this kicked off, I I did a, a keynote speech for Lamborghini Edinburgh and uh it was on you know making decisions at speed, which is appropriate obviously for Lamborghini. And uh it, it was an evening do and uh we had I think 30 of Lamborghinis Um, top clients in the room. And and it would probably be inappropriate of me to name some of the clients because they're sort of fairly well known around Scotland. Um, But at least three of them were on their second or third Lamborghini that year um, to give you some idea as to the the net worth of the individuals. Um, And then actually afterwards, we kind of all stood around and had had a bit of a chat and a glass of wine and, and what have you. And the thing that instantly struck me was there wasn't a degree in the room. So here we are, we had this room of 30 people that were all clients of Lamborghini. So in other words, they got themselves into a position where they had a large six-figure sum to spend on a car that wasn't the car that they used every day, it was a toy, etc. And every single one of them, fascinating individuals, men and women, all creeds and colours, and every single one of them got themselves into that position, not one of them had got a degree. I'm not suggesting you should, you know, avoid having a degree, but it's clearly not the be-all and end-all. And it was for me, it was just really interesting. To me, it was a fascinating group of people that had kind of obviously duck, dive, bob, weaved, you know, done, done whatever they needed to do um, to, uh, to get themselves successfully, depending on your measure of success, into that position. Quite interesting. Yeah.
1: They've studied. They've just studied different things. Uh, but they've studied. They've learned massively. They've been great yeah. learners. We have this sort of almost snobbishness, don't we, about what learning looks like, which is mad.
3: Well, they'd all
0: failed and got back up again. Every single one of them had had at least one business fail and got back up again, Learned the lessons, moved on from that. And in fact, they all, all worked hard. They all, you Mm. know, put the the hard yards in without, you know, without question.
2: It's interesting, actually, because my son is in exactly this position. So he dropped out of college um, after doing his first year in lockdown and just went, I cannot bear. This is my dyslexic one. I cannot bear to sit here online and do another year. Got, a, got himself an apprenticeship but while he's doing his apprenticeship working really hard in the day as a scaffolder he comes home at five o'clock he logs on to this course that he has bought now he was doing a business studies course at you know at, at um, sixth form college which he hated now he's bought this course for 300 pounds to learn all the entrepreneurial skills about different sort of selling techniques on on drop shipping and all these different things of which he has filled notepad after notepad on notes on it and I think this is fascinating. It's not that he can't learn, it's just that there was no purpose behind it at, at college. Now, as you say, he will be entrepreneurial. He will, because he's so driven. He is so driven. I'm not concerned about him in the future. But at school, it was a nightmare. Paul, I remember lovely, talking about your
0: yeah. um, Paul did an MBA I remember talking to Paul about his MBA. And you know, this this was a a guy sitting on top of a business that was turning over 50 million and was doing the whole the whole bit. And it was all kind of theoretical and mod- and. Models. I remember one night, Paul, you coming back, me quite frustrated because Paul was like, kind of, uh, well, this guy's like, here's the business model, and Paul said, well, that that, that doesn't work, you yeah? know, and yet this academic had told Paul that this is how businesses work, and Paul's like, well, my fairly large business doesn't work like that, <laughs> and I grew it, and, and you almost did you, Paul, you almost had like a theoretical argument. Well, uh,
3: we we could fill we could fill
0: another couple of hours on this of where why I think. Uh,
3: science and the world of business thinks it's a science and it's not uh, it's it's an art form and there's a huge amount of survivor bias in there there's a huge amount of the people who get to the top write the book and everyone goes oh wow and they forget about the 200 people who didn't make it and there's, there's a lot there to talk about um, But about what I think about just just learning about the people who managed to get to the top actually what's quite useful and this is coming from my veterinary medical science background is learning from the people who didn't make it why didn't they make it and what went wrong was it just luck or were there actual reasons so there's that's why and and i think probably lots of people have heard this anecdote before that's the thing about american entrepreneurs versus british entrepreneurs perhaps american entrepreneurs are, are more uh, more happy to take risk because uh, a lot of venture capitalists a lot of people who put money into entrepreneurs actually want someone who's failed at least once or twice already before they put money in in America because by failing you learn a huge amount about how to set a business up how to run it how to do this and in this country you go bankrupt and no one touches you because they think you've failed once and therefore we won't now I'm sure that it's an old anecdote but it still rings true that actually do you if everyone's so scared of failing it puts people off taking the risk. If you say, well, actually you failed, I'm now going to invest in you because you've learned, you probably learned how not to do it again. That's perhaps the way we want to do it. Um, but there's a lot there that I've said, sorry.
0: <laughs> well, I think it's very really interesting. Catherine was about risk earlier. And I just find this interesting. So if you were to get, as we both know, so every penny, every amount of income, if you like, that I've ever generated having left the military has been self-generated right from work, as I have all of us sitting here. And yet, if I went to a bank and asked for a mortgage, they laugh at me because I'm a I'm a I'm a risk. I'm dangerous. I it, do, it doesn't add up. Um, and yet, if you went to see some of my counterparts or my siblings that you know have got big jobs for you know Deloitte or um, PwC or, or whatever that looks like, they're seen as safe and steady, and and that's perfect in terms of the risk algorithm. And yet, the irony of it is that a lot of those people I know that work for those big companies if they turn around tomorrow and said, sorry, that's you, would not know where to start. So actually, if you had a pandemic and suddenly the, those comfortable jobs are no longer comfortable, and that person that's been a part of that corporate machine for the entire time, uh, just know where to start, totally and utterly lost and got to go because they've never bounced, they've never sidestepped, they've never had to pick it up and, and start again, not in, in a different context. So I don't know, I just find it quite interesting. Whereas if you take people that have constantly found a monthly income to pay that mortgage, off their own backs, no matter what that looks like. To me, that's less of a risk, not more of a risk. But I guess I just look at things differently.
2: No, I agree. I agree
1: entirely. It's interesting in sport as well. We would never dream of winning every race. Uh, you know, of course you wouldn't. You learn through the races you lose. They're, they are valuable learning. You're learning all the time. In fact, you just have this focus on improving. You know, people sort of see, oh, athletes are obsessed with winning. Well, actually, we're obsessed with, improving because that's the best way to optimize your chances of winning but we won't win every time and we know that and there are lots of external factors and uncontrollables related to that what we can control is how we learn and how we improve and how we maximize all of those incremental gains but there's not a sense or expectation that you're going to win everything and often that leads people astray or they have a massive crash then within sport when they don't win everything because they realize oh yeah actually that that's not really how it how it works but again we often don't set people up to to kind of be be ready for that i think sport you know that's where it can teach lessons you know outside of the classroom that are some of the lessons that are most useful for the rest of people's lives um, you know, but again, it's that sense. Why do we then in school? You know, yeah. If you fail an exam, well, we don't talk about that. That's something we're almost ashamed of. Rather than wow, great. What did? What? What do we learn from that? That's never the approach, is it?
3: No. And the best thing I think to learn, for this is how I always say when people say, you know, how do I get better at leadership? How do I learn leadership? Yeah, you can you can read books and you can pay sandstone lots of money to come and talk to you, of course. But but actually, the best thing to do is to go and have a go at it. Just do it because it's mostly just talking with people. And actually, you learn a lot just by making it by, by cocking it up and then sitting down and being self-reflective and going when I said that everyone hated me or when I said that the pa- the the energy in the room collapsed. Right, that's really interesting. I won't do that again. And just just by having a go, messing it up and then doing a bit being a bit self-reflective, I think you learn huge amounts by doing by failing, by doing it that
1: way. Yeah, yeah and that sort of review of experimenting, reviewing all oh, what happened, adapting, exper- you know, getting into that experimental mindset, which is part of learning, which is part of accepting failure. I'm gonna I'm gonna try something new now because again as a leader In order to grow, you need to try something different. What happens? You know, let me try this. Let me see how else I can, you know, how can I improve the impact? How can I support others? How can I make them feel safe? You know, again, we've got to explore, got to experiment because there isn't a sort of ready-made formula.
0: I used to win the most improved prize quite a lot, but I'm not entirely sure that was a good thing. (laughs) (laughs) It's the best
1: thing. It's the
2: best thing.
3: (laughs) He hasn't won it for a while. I don't know what's going on.
2: But don't you think that's something, I genuinely think that's something that the military do do quite well, is that whole debrief cycle. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's inbuilt into your daily routine, whether it's the whirlwind of what went well, what went badly, what do we need more of, or if it's this whole funnel of, you know, what happened, what were the facts, why did it happen, of course, and how can we be better? But if you think, I mean, for me, every single flight I have ever done in a military aircraft we have debriefed it afterwards and the debrief takes the same amount of time as the brief. Do
0: you know you what know, that's exactly what I was about to say funny enough I was about to ask you that and Kathy you must do the same rowing so Paul and I make a real thing of whenever we run a gig whenever we do a session we debrief it whether it's good or bad or indifferent yeah. and I think I was going to ask you two the same question because certainly when I was doing intelligence op stuff we, we used to do that so in other words after the operation is finished everybody's hopefully home safe etc there isn't a debrief. And it could have been the best operation in the world or the worst operation in the world. There's a full debrief. We go through it exactly the same way. Nobody gets excited about it. It's just part of life. Because it then becomes routine, there's kind of, it's then much easier to have those, oh, actually, I didn't think this was brilliant or we could have done that better or actually this went really well. Because one of the things I always am sort of at a loss as is how many companies don't debrief the wins? Because if you've got something right, you can repeat it. Yeah. Uh, you know and i've never understood why they don't sort of debrief the win- you know how many people debrief winning business pitches you, you know nobody they they tear themselves apart when they lose the pitch but how do you even debrief the you know the winning ones to to try and repeat it and for me if you can create a habit of debriefing all the time then it's not a big issue. Then we go through the pattern. You won't see that. You won't
3: see that in business that I've really been involved in all the time. It's like, how did that go? It, it turned out exactly as I wanted it. Everything was brilliant. Really? Can we learn anything? No, nope, it was perfect. So we, we took off and we've landed at the wrong airport. Yep, I meant to land there. That's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and you just end up spinning everything to fit the, you know, this is exactly how I wanted it to look. Uh mm. so,
2: it's, it's unbelievable really, isn't it? Because the most common thing I hear with businesses is we just don't have time. We don't have time. You think, Well, you don't have time to learn. It's like a golfer, isn't it? Just hitting golf balls into the dark and then getting no feedback as to where they're going. So what do they do? Only they just one. keep on people doing one. it. <laughs> so it translates
1: perfectly, yeah, into the sports world where again we would review regardless of the result. Because yeah. if I've won, I still need to go faster next time. And if I've lost, I need to go faster next time. It's the same. So absolutely. And and also, you know, when the other thing is when people review, they go, oh, it was awful. This was all wrong. But actually, there are things you did well in the pitch you lost. So that is madness not to capture those. You know, when I lost races, there were things I was doing in those races that were world class. And there were other things that weren't. But it would be stupid to ignore those things that were really good because that's what I'm going to build on in order to go faster next time rather than say the whole thing was rubbish because we came last or because we lost so again it's actually important to be quite disciplined about what are the things that are working well regardless of the result that's what you know the long win is get rid of these results that are stopping you learning that are somehow hijacking your mind from realizing this is the stuff that's working this is what i need to improve this is how i'm going to do it and the result tells us none of that yeah
0: no, it's, really, it's really, really interesting. Ladies, I'm just looking at the time and I, I have actually really, really enjoyed that. Thank you very much indeed. And I think perhaps we should maybe uh, pick this up again you know, in the future at, at some point, perhaps in a month or so's time. It'd be, it'd be quite interesting to see as we start to perhaps see lockdown easing a little bit and perhaps people's um it'd be interesting to see whether we've learned any of the lessons over the last 12 months wouldn't it and you know we all work with quite large companies and look at leadership and perhaps we should all get together and see whether there's been any noticeable changes in performance or or perception of success actually um yeah. that'd be quite interesting
2: fantastic well, really enjoyable. thanks guys thoroughly enjoyed our chat thanks i wonder have else to just think of it as a pub room you know like we're having a pub chat in the background exactly.
0: <laughs> yeah well, that's, uh, that's good though